you think that it's difficult for public intellectuals to speak truth to power, it is that much more difficult to speak truth to money. That's Dan Dresner, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and contributor to the Washington Post, talking about the difficulty that public intellectuals and thought leaders face in bringing into the mainstream certain ideas that challenge the plutocratic status quo. In this, our second retrospective episode at the end of 2017, we'll hear from Dan, as well as from Joe Livingstone, culture staff writer at The New Republic. This episode focuses on the role of the public intellectual or even the academic in cultural debate. We hear from Dan Dresner about the difference between public intellectuals and thought leaders and what happens when we have too many of one over the other. In our conversation, Dan addresses the importance of expertise in cultural debate and discourse. He considers why respect for expertise, excuse me, seems to be on the decline. But perhaps it's not on the decline everywhere. In the latter half of this episode, we hear from Joe Livingstone about the ways she brings her academic expertise to bear on her criticism at the New Republic. In 2015, Joe received a PhD at NYU. She's an expert in medieval studies and literature, and she makes use of some of that expertise to the benefit of her readers. We'll hear from Joe in a few minutes, but first, a bit of my conversation with Dan Dresner from earlier this year. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. You recently published an article, which is an excerpt from your book, the ideas industry called the triumph of the thought leader and the eclipse of the public intellectual. To dig into this article, I'm wondering if first we could define terms. So yeah. what, what, what in your view is a thought leader and what's a public intellectual? And I'll just, I'll just throw out my sense initially. And I think this might be the sense of some listeners is that thought leader sounds, sounds kind of new and public intellectual sounds perhaps old kind of fifties, kind of tweedy kind of Lionel trilling esque. And I'm wondering if that was your intention in using that particular term as opposed to thought leader. To some extent. And, and to be fair, the terms I'm using, I think, are, are well known and probably despised by a wide number of people. So the problem was is it was hard to come up with, with any new kind of term. And I thought it, it, rather than trying to come up with some sort of neologism, like, God forbid, something like thinkfluencer or something. <laughs> Um, I thought it was just better to use these terms because I, I think it does accurately capture what uh, the sort of difference between the two of them. So, in essence, the distinction between the two of them goes back to Isaiah Berlin's essay, The Hedgehog and the Fox, in which Berlin says that there are two kinds of thinkers in the world. There's the fox who knows a little bit about a lot, and then there's the hedgehog who knows one big thing. The way I transport that in terms of the sort of modern marketplace of ideas is that public intellectuals are like foxes. Public intellectuals are critics. They can tell you everything that is wrong with everyone else's idea. They bring expertise to the table, but very often they're willing to branch out beyond their expertise, and they are generally function as critics. Thought leaders, on the other hand, are evangelists. They're the hedgehogs. They know one big thing. They have usually one big idea, and they think that that idea can explain everything. And so if you come at them with a problem, they will somehow find a way in which that problem can be explained by whatever their big idea is. I want to be clear, when I talk about, and in some ways the Chronicle essay uh, shaped this a little bit, it gives the impression that all academics are public intellectuals and are not thought leaders. That is not what I would say. In fact, there are a fair number of academics that actually do function as thought leaders. And as Berlin noted in the original essay, there are limits to the extent to which you can push this dichotomy. 
But I do think it actually works in terms of explaining the, the modern marketplace of ideas. And what I say in the book is that essentially to have a proper marketplace of ideas, you need both of these kinds of thinkers. You need public intellectuals and you need thought leaders. You need thought leaders to inject new ideas into the marketplace, and then you need public intellectuals to criticize them within an inch of their lives. And so if you have a market dominated by public intellectuals, that's a marketplace in which the barriers to entry are too high. And so as a result, things get very stagnant and ossified. It's the same bunch of people. And as you say, in some ways, that does reflect, I think, to, to a great deal, the sort of Cold War years mm. um, in which it was a, a more restricted, narrower, uh, sort of Eastern establishment kind of, of conversation in which the Lionel Trillings of the world certainly thrived, but it was tougher for other intellectuals to potentially uh, surmount those barriers. The world we're in now is one in which, uh, for a variety of reasons, the marketplace is dominated by thought leaders. And that is certainly a more interesting and vibrant marketplace. But the problem there is that while the barriers to entry might be too low or might be low, the barriers to exit are too high. In other words, you have a lot of ideas floating around, but they're really, really stupid ideas very often. <laughs> and so as a result, you don't have sufficiently powerful public intellectuals being able to kill bad ideas uh, with intellectual fire, as it were. And so in a world in which public intellectuals are weakened, you know, you have these ideas that can actually achieve public prominence or, God forbid, actually influence the way policymakers act um, without them being properly vetted. Could you give some examples of each category? So uh, we, you've been talking about Cold War intellectuals for public intellectuals, but I'm just wondering, um, maybe some people either working today or working in, in recent history, uh, who, who, who would be a good example of a thought leader and who would be a good example of a public intellectual? Right. So in, in the book, which is primarily, and I should add, the book is primarily about the sort of foreign policy community, mostly because that's my own area of expertise and that's an area that I've encountered a fair amount. The two examples I give, of uh, one of, of a public intellectual would be someone like Fareed Zakaria, who is you know, extremely well-credentialed. He's got a PhD from Harvard. He was the managing editor of foreign affairs. And he comments on a wide variety of, of things. In fact, at one point, I believe he had a wine column at Slate magazine. And the interesting thing about uh, Zakaria is that no one is entirely sure what Zakaria's own beliefs are. In researching the book, it was fascinating to read profiles of him in which he was labeled at various times a liberal, a centrist, a conservative, and a neoconservative. And you can't be all of those things at the same time, which suggests that he's actually holding his hard, uh, cards very close to the vest and certainly willing to comment on other ideas. And, he, and to be clear, I'm not trying to say that Zakaria doesn't have any opinions. He actually has some rather clear opinions on some of his books, but his sort of overall worldview, I would argue, is more one of a critic rather than one putting forward a positive vision. On the other hand, in terms of the world of thought leaders, someone like Neil Ferguson, I think, would be a, a classic example of a thought leader. Neil Ferguson is as credentialed, if not more so, than, than Zakaria. Certainly, you know, from the Academy, he's written more books, I'm sure, than I will ever read. But, you know, he comes at things in terms of his public commentary from a decidedly conservative worldview and sort of plays the role of the happy warrior in terms of, of engaging his critics on this. And he has many, many critics. But, you know, really believes the, the, the sort of notion that, that Western civilization, the sort of six killer apps he talks about in terms of Western civilization, are worth preserving and, and can explain a great deal in terms of the sort of current state of the world, which is, you know, either the decline of the West or the rise of the West. So, so you begin your article uh, 
this way, uh, quote, it's the best of times for thought leaders. It's the worst of times for public intellectuals. It's the most confusing of times for those of us in the academy. You've sort of been, uh, I think, gesturing toward th- th- this sort of dynamic, this current state of affairs and, and what you've said so far. But I'm wondering if we could dig right into um, why you think it is that in the present moment, or uh, to, to use a phrase that's this is a sort of N plus one phrase, the present intellectual situation. What is it about this moment or situation that's more conducive to the success of of Neil Ferguson and the so-called thought leaders as opposed to uh, public intellectuals? Right. So I mean, the parallel, I, I, I don't say this explicitly in the book, but for your podcast listeners, who I'm sure we'll be able to make the connection. I kind of thought of this book in some ways like E.H. Carr's 20 Years Crisis. That book, which was written in 1939, set up a dichotomy between utopian thinkers and realist thinkers. And a lot of people who have read Carr came away from that book concluding, oh, Carr is a realist. He doesn't subscribe to these modes of utopian thinking. Where if you actually read the book carefully, it's very clear that Carr understands that the world needs both utopian and realist thinkers. But he was arguing in that present at that moment mm. in the late 30s that the utopians were too dominant and that was a problem. So in essence, what I'm arguing now is that thought leaders are too dominant now, and that's a problem. But the, the reason that I think there are three forces that I, I talk about in the book, the first is the erosion of trust in authority and expertise. And you can take a look at public opinion survey after public opinion survey, but basically trust in almost every major American institution outside of the U.S. military has declined significantly since the mid-60s. There's been some variation, obviously, and so on and so forth. Uh, but the decline has been pretty constant. And if you take a look at sort of knowledge-based institutions, the General Social Survey conducts this kind of, of surveying. And basically between 1974 and 2012, the average sort of confidence level in those institutions fell from 50% to 30%. And that's problematic uh, because in a world in which trust in institutions and authority and expertise is low, it means that public intellectuals who are very often the more heavily credentialed kind of thinker can't argue from authority. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that arguing from authority is always very good. Arguing from authority is an intellectual shortcut. If, you know, let's say Paul Krugman says, you know, this current foreign policy decision is a bad one, very often people reading it will think, oh, my God, a Nobel Prize winning economist thinks this is a bad idea. It must be a bad idea. Um, in a world in which trust in authority and expertise is low, it means that that kind of technique doesn't work anymore. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're a tenured professor at Harvard or if you're a MacArthur Genius Grant winner or if you're a Pulitzer Prize winner or what have you. Those credentials don't necessarily matter to people. So as a result, this actually does lower the barrier to entry for thought leaders who might have some of these credentials but might come at things not from the academy but from other places like uh, the business world or public relations or what have you. Uh, so that's trend one. Trend two is the increasing rise of political polarization in America. Um, and again, the data on this is pretty incontrovertible in that, uh, you know, basically Republican elites are shifting ever more in a conservative direction. Democratic elites are shifting in an ever more liberal direction. There's a variety of explanations to this, which I don't want to get into. But the important thing is that essentially neither set of elites trust the other anymore. Indeed, down to the point where when they are surveyed, you have you know, Republican elites that don't want their children to marry Democrats, because that would be worse than marrying someone of a different religion, you know, or something like that. And so, uh, and indeed, there's been survey evidence that shows that in terms of things like job discrimination, 
partisan elites are far more likely to discriminate based on someone's political persuasion than on things like race or gender or sexual orientation. This is problematic because, in theory, a public intellectual is supposed to speak truth to power. A public intellectual is supposed to, you know, say what they think is, is true no matter what, which occasionally makes them intellectually heterodox. But that's not what partisan elites on either side want. They want their own house intellectuals. They want their own people who tell them, you are absolutely right in terms of what you should believe. And so as a result, it leads to the, the generation of intellectuals that essentially make money by catering to one base or the other. So think about the Dinesh D'Souza's of the world. I think that's the, the example that I use in the book, and I think it's a, a pretty good one, um, in which D'Souza has become rich basically by telling conservatives that what they believe is completely 100% all the time correct. Mm -hmm. The third trend, is, and the most serious one, is the rise of uh, economic inequality in the United States, um, particularly the rise of wealth inequality and the existence of a sort of you know, new plutocratic class um, in which these people have more money than they know what to do with, and it turns out that what they want to do is go back to college. Uh, but they don't go back to college. What they actually do is create their own foundation or create their own intellectual salon. Um, or create their own book club, or wind up attending Davos, or Pop Tech, or South by Southwest, or what have you. Um, and the idea is that these people are genuinely interested in ideas, and that's not a bad thing, I would stress. However, as a class, plutocrats have particular viewpoints that make them somewhat distinct from the rest of the population. And unsurprisingly, they are going to want to talk to thinkers that essentially confirm their preconceived worldviews. So as a result, um, if they encounter a public intellectual who tells them, well, you got rich in part based on your own effort, but also in large part based on structural conditions beyond your control, plutocrats don't like hearing that. They don't like hearing that there are things beyond their control. Indeed, if you're that rich, you often very often believe you can control everything. You're a master of the universe. Um, and if you think that it's difficult for public intellectuals to speak truth to power, it is that much more difficult to speak truth to money. Um, and so as a result, uh, what these kinds of uh, plutocrats will do is winding up funding thought leaders that essentially offer ways of thinking that uh, essentially reaffirm whatever their preconsisting worldview is. And their preconsisting worldview tends to be a kind of soft libertarianism. And this is true regardless of what their stated political persuasion is. I mean, so we're not just talking about the Koch brothers here. We're also talking about Silicon Valley. Right where those, those billionaires are decidedly on the left if you were to sort of do a simple left-right political spectrum. But they often view politics as a sort of piece of faulty coding that they can somehow hack. Um, and that's not how politics works. That was Dan Dresner talking about the difference between thought leaders and public intellectuals. Now we'll hear from one such public intellectual, Joe Livingstone, culture staff writer at The New Republic. Thanks for listening. A chief difference between academic writing and um, writing for a wider audience, I think, is that one takes a lot of practice. Writing for a commercial audience takes a lot of practice, whereas I think that writing up your academic research can, even though it's really, t it's still really tough, um, there are fewer professional standards, to be honest. Mm. Ideally, you're being kind of judged on the strength of uh, a shape of, the conceptual shape of what um, you're communicating and your research, which ideally should be like really fully formed before you write it all down. Mm. Whereas with commercial writing, 
you almost every time have to begin writing without quite, you know, you've handed in like a little pitch to an editor of maybe 200 words, and then you have to turn it into a piece of writing. Mm. And the argument should really come together as you're writing it, and you should be able to respond to the argument, um, respond to current events. You have to be extremely responsive in a way that, um, I think with academic writing, you're more kind of um, trying to do justice to an idea. I, my, me and um, my best friend have kind of two competing models for the, the kind of any creative project. And she likes to think that like when you start writing something or making a work of art, that there's a platonic perfect form of it inside a block of marble and you're hewing, you're like carving away at it. And I like to think of it as like constructing upwards from the ground, like throwing sticks together to build something. They're kind of like two sculptural metaphors. Mm. Um, and much though those two different metaphors speak to the different ways that we conceive of ourselves as writers, I do think that like the hewing a shape from the marble rock <laughs> is, is closer to um, the project of an academic that there's less space to be like aleatory and experimental. I mean, much though I think that this Humanities Academy would like to think of itself as an aleatory and experimental place with room for failure you're in a way trying to reveal the pl platonic form of your original thought. And I don't think that that is a responsive practice in the way that writing real-time criticism is. So in that sense, did, have you always felt, if you think that your most natural disposition is to write upward or to discover your argument as you produce it on the page, um, have you always felt in a way like a cultural critic and you and you just were in the academy because it was... <laughs> something that w it was the obvious choice to make at the time it wasn't it felt obvious i did my undergraduate degree in england and in england you get much more specialized much more early so i really took my degree in medieval languages and literature and i was good at it and i really really liked it and i had just like i really loved working on the history of language i loved getting obsessed with the poetry the manuscripts but then when i got to grad school and I really did a PhD so that I could move to America for free. Hmm. I don't know. I wrote some really wild fucking shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a reason why none of my stuff is publishable. Because I wanted to do really like counterintuitive and um, like highly contrasting projects. Maybe that's why I studied medieval and post-colonial um, literatures. Because it as would allow you to do wild... I mean, it, it itself as a field of study, surely, if you go to a cocktail party, say, and people ask what your specialty is, they know that perhaps they already know you're doing your doctorate in something in the humanities, so already you're sort of far afield from the mainstream. But, I mean, you also had the added bonus of having to say that you were doing medieval work. What initially drew you then? Was it just the variety of things you could write about? What, into medieval I'm sorry, studies? into medieval studies, yeah. I've always been animated by this kind of destructive um, urge to juxta juxtapose things. Okay. So as soon as I got really interested in theory and um, linguistic theory, especially, I was like, wait, this is going to be fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the more and I got interested in um, post-colonial studies, the more I was like, yeah, I've got to like insist on applying this uh, Discipline, which is literally historically contingent on modernity to uh, pre-modern materials. Is that, I mean, there's a, is, is that an ahistorical project? I guess it is, it is, um, it's a, uh, it would require some intellectual gymnastics 
on your part and also some awareness of the fact that the subject itself is somehow counterintuitive. Was was there an initial topic, an initial like interest? Yeah, what, yeah, yeah maps, maps. Maps, oh, okay. So my dissertation was substantially about medieval map making. And um, I honestly found the easiest way for me to start thinking about them as um, uh, cultural objects was uh, using theories around place and space, which are generally you know, kind of categorized under politics of culture kind of classes, which are often taught by scholars of post-colonial um, thought. Um, you know, thinking about like Lefebvre, those kind of theorists of place and space. And then it kind of, it grew from there. But yeah, you're right. The intellectual gymnastics was literally the whole point. <laughs> it's, so, it's so fun. But yeah, I mean, someone on my committee um, who I kind of convinced to be on board, and he was he was great, but he was like, you know, my whole career, I've thought of race as being something that was, you know, it was in in the form that we know it invented in this time period, which means that your project is not legitimate. And I was like, mm, yeah, but you're on my committee, so you must be unsure. And he's like, mm, guess so. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's very interesting. That's actually offers a terrific segue into one of the elements of your writing at the New Republic that I'd like to talk about. So um, as just for listeners who aren't immediately familiar with your work, you're a cultural staff writer at the New Republic, and you write about a great deal. Um, so I have in front of me here articles on current television and cinema. I've got your piece on Mindhunter. Um, but then I've also got a piece on Susan Sontag in front of me that you just recently wrote, and also some articles on medievalism and its recent misuse and abuse by white supremacists and white nationalists. Um, perhaps we can start on that latter point or issue because you were just gesturing toward it, which is the question of race in the medieval period um, and the way perhaps we can project our own construction, our current constructions of race back onto the medieval period. So you've published articles both in the New Republic and the New Yorker on this strange and troubling tendency of white supremacists to imagine their cultural heritage stretching back to a kind of popularized medieval past, which in fact never existed. Could you talk about this tendency? How did you spot it? And what about it troubles you, fascinates you? What questions do you put to it? I initially spotted it, honestly, when I was um, reading um, about the origins of medieval studies as, as we know it in the 19th century. Um, this is something that Carolyn Dinshaw, who's of this department, has written about um, to some extent. Um, she was the chair of my dissertation committee, um, that there were influential medievalists in the 19th century who were also involved in the colonial project and who would draw kind of comparisons between um, the medieval village and rural villages in South Asia, for example. So that was really the jumping off point. Um, but yeah, as you, as you say, writing about race has become one of the kind of like animating ethics of my career now. It's what m makes my job feel important. And yeah, I, this has been the case for many, many decades, but the Middle Ages are for many people a kind of imagined space of ethnic homogeneity, a kind of pure originary for whiteness um, in the West. And that there is some kind of um, authentic cultural link between um, again, the spurious and imagined um, ancient white West, to which they're in, in which the white supremacists can find their authentic self, right? That they can connect to um, as 
centralized vision of whiteness in a way because you know whiteness is always having to be renegotiated in America um, around different um, around different poles but it has I mean t seen like a huge upswing lately and I wrote so about Charlottesville um, and the kind of visual language of uh, white supremacists when you say visual language do you mean like icons um, yeah like I a, mean like yeah. shields with Firstly, the fact of like carrying a shield, right? It's it's a kind of chivalric um, gesture, which again goes is also about coding masculinity, right? Like some vision of the uh, chivalrous man as something under threat from the forces of of the left. Carrying shields, some with kind of medieval inflected designs on them, and the that again, the kind of military stakes of that uh, invokes the Crusades, which was you know like an anti-Muslim series of, of wars um, that really, you know, was not about Christianity. Um, it was about land grab. So I guess my, my first question about that is, from your scholarly perspective, um, why is that this, this tendency to look back, white supremacist tendency to look back into the medieval past for some, like, pure origin of whiteness? Why is it not just politically wrong, which we is, is implicit in it itself, but also we've been describing it. Why is it historically factually wrong? Well, so there's a, um, a woman who was with me in the English department as a PhD student called Annie Abrams, and she's written fairly extensively about the term WASP in America, right? The white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Even in a phrase like that, the category of Anglo-Saxon is... Uh, fiction isn't quite the right word, but it's a construction with no real referent in Anglo-Saxon culture itself, right? Or in the, the time period when people spoke Old English and lived in um, pre-conquest Britain. It is entirely coded with the tropes and motifs of the white and Protestant, right? Um, and it's kind of, an, uh, I think she writes that it's an idea that traces the history of those like upper class Protestants in um, New England in a kind of like west to east progression through the Western world. Or like we began here and we came here. So we have come from the deep past to this present moment from kind of like the, sorry, the east to the west. And so, th and this kind of represents like the journey of hmm. like hyper modern civilization. None of us can visit <laughs> the Middle Ages. We are always constructing it as a field. Even as we construct it as a field, we are always relying on the conclusions and the, and the research methodologies of the medievalists who came before us, who, you know, going back to the 19th century or even the early 20th century, were sometimes white supremacists themselves who thought that the Crusades were like holy wars, right? Um, there is no pure real access to the Middle Ages, it's always constructed. Um, it's always an imaginary, and I really think it's the, like, the professional obligation of people with some kind of greater material access <laughs> to what the Middle Ages were like, um, who can testify to its ethnic diversity, to the cultural contact that was um, flourishing in that period, to tell, to fa feel like medievalists have the authority to say we're right and white supremacists are wrong. So uh, uh, talking about this notion of scholars being able to look at medievalism and talk about it or the medieval 
medieval history or medieval times and talk about it with some authoritative force. I think you can you have this force in your cultural criticism on the topic. It allows you to make points um, like the following from your August 15th piece in the New Republic, quote, racist medievalism can be not just morally abhorrent, but also deliciously stupid, end quote. You, you cite one medieval scholar as having pointed out that, as you say, certain factions in Charlottesville have appropriated the Black Eagle of the Holy Roman Germanic Empire, which is strongly associated with its patron Saint, Saint Maurice, who was black, end quote. Now here you sort of lay bare the absurdity of this white supremacist tendency. It's just sort of laughably confused. But what's really, um, well, one of, the, one of the things that's really too bad about the situation is that it's not as if the points you or any other scholar could make to white nationalists about their historical confusion would make much a difference to white nationalists, it seems, because they're not really, they're resistant to reason and they're also resistant to the sort of argumentation that goes on in the academy, it seems. So I guess I'm wondering what role, if any, you see in your criticism or in the work of academic scholars to undermine or frustrate the efforts of white supremacists who try to reclaim or claim and distort medieval history. I see where you're coming from, and I don't fully agree. Just to note that um, stuff about the heraldry relating to St. Morris, recently a medievalist got in touch to say, well, this isn't exactly right. I think that the sh shield is related to something else. But again, as you say, it's... Uh, we're all dealing with photocopies of right. simulacra here. Right. So it, it's it, maybe it illustrates not a greater irony, which is real. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so I appreciate your point that... Um, the com you know, if we were to imagine a conversation really happening between um, violent white supremacists and um, medievalist academics, that we wouldn't be speaking on the same frequencies on the two-way radio, right? That we would just totally bypass each other. At the same time, there are medievalists um, who are sympathetic to people on the hard right. Um, I don't know if you've read about her, but Professor Rachel Fulton Brown, um, in Chicago's history department. Um, she was quoted in, I mean, she, she runs a blog which is very right-wing in its sympathy. She's a big supporter of Milo Yiannopoulos. She was also um, cited in that BuzzFeed investigation, mm -hmm. which was into the people who were feeding information to, um, to Milo. Sh and, you know, she is really totally willing to uh, instrumentalize her research uh, into something like masculinity and chivalry, right? And say, it's just like, I read some post where she said, when white men invented um, like the concept of chivalry and respect towards women in the whatever century. Like, so, you know, and she's really, people like that are kind of a focal point for the intersection between the, pu you know, the public and um, the research-based ideas of the medieval. At the same time, um, in the piece that you, you mentioned, the New Yorker piece about um, manuscripts, I noted the work of a grad student called Sierra Lamuto, who had, in a recent conference paper, talked about the way that um, so-called Celtic iconography from medieval manuscripts is being very specifically appropriated by white nationalists. I think she quoted uh, some forum poster who said, it's less obvious than a swastika. Right. And, you know, 
there's a spectrum of thought here, right? So she's a grad student presenting. I'm pretty sure she's a grad student. I would hate it if she's a tenured professor and I've somehow sexistly demoted her. Um, there's a spectrum. So she presents at a conference. She then again, pr pr she presented at a, a conference that was held um, in DC recently about um, white supremacy in the Middle Ages. I read about it. I'm a, for a former academic and, and a writer. You know, the, the New York is a pretty mainstream publication. Like, there is, I think, a much, there's more of a gradient of communications in existence than I think the traditional divide between public and academic suggests. And that that gradient is only becoming more, I think it's only becoming wider, right? It's, uh, it's only becoming more inclusive as the kind of roles the traditional career paths and roles for academics break down. Mm, so the initial example you provided for this gradient was the collusion between uh, white supremacists and an academic. But do you generally see hope, perhaps, in this gradient? Do you think it's a good thing that there's a greater sense of communication between the academy and the culture? I think it's good for the culture and bad for the academy. Why? Because <laughs> it sucks for the academy that there are no jobs for talented people, so they're leaving, um, which means that they're... I mean, I think that it means that the standard of teaching is going to erode. I mean, this we're talking about America here, but it's going to erode over the coming decades. Teachers are going to become more overworked, less fulfilled, be producing worse <laughs> research, um, not to be derogatory towards anybody at work today. But I think it's good for the culture because there are ever more highly trained um, people who are ready and willing to talk about to talk about their research, but also to bring academia-honed research skills to public discourse. So I have I have a couple I have a few questions about that. I just want to circle back to one more question I have about um, your writing on medievalism, um, which is that uh, of course you received, as I think I've mentioned, you received your PhD at NYU in 2015. Um, your writing on medieval topics that you did then surely is different than your writing on medieval topics that you do now as a cultural critic. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier the um, difficulties, the new difficulties that you face as a writer because um, you have new demands on your writing um, by virtue of the fact that you have a wider audience and you have to justify your writing on other terms other than just it's you adding to the scholarship. How do you, I, I, I guess uh, to make the question general, what what questions do you put to your cultural criticism if it at all relates to your academic work that makes you um, that, that forces you to make it relevant so to speak to a general reader or the bored lawyer who's looking to take it off the shelf there are certain questions that I no longer feel that I have to ask of my own writing and one that has been one change that has been the most liberating is that I no longer have to position my work according to the thought trends animating the discourse in, or the, the scholarly moment in academia. So for example, I never have to consider the non-human in the ethics of my writing, right? My dissertation was actually about the kind of uh, co-implication of landscape with racial identity in, um, Western European poetry that was about South Asia. And in that, I really had to position, you know, what I really cared about was people, right? How did 
producing um, works of art feed into people's sense of themselves as white and um, in existing in this very, very tense and vibratory self-other dialectic with Indian people. But what I really cared about was the payoff for human beings. And then I could go into my you know, fourth chapter talking about the 19th century and saying, look, I was right. But in writing that, I really had to reckon with... Um, you know, with animal studies, uh, with the kind of post-human turn, um, with object-oriented ontology. And that's all, like, well and good and was excellent for my mind. Um, but every time that <laughs> I'm... Every time that I get to reassert the human stakes of my writing now, I feel like a little thrill. That was Dan Dresner and Joe Livingstone. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading fingers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference in the Midwest brings together academics and journalists discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howenstein.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.